Do you know why I chose to tell you to start this podcast off with the story of Heather Thomas? It's often easy to forget that the stories we see on the nightly news include real people. I'm not judging you, of course. I myself often get worried that I am more amused than horrified when I watch a true crime documentary or listen to a podcast. And it seems the more evil and heinous things I hear about, the more I need to know. I need to know where they came from, who their parents were, what school they went to. I stared down that rabbit hole and it sucks me in. I watch documentaries gorging myself on their life, their hobbies, their failed romances. I learn every detail of the villain. And if we're being honest with ourselves, the villain is often the most interesting part. Sound familiar? It's because you're like me. But this isn't the new obsession of a warped millennial generation. You and I are not anomalies or aberrations. We aren't sick and twisted, turned rotten by social media and reality TV. In 1897, true crime was so popular that newspaper baron William Hearst formed a group of reporters to investigate criminal cases called the Murder Squad. They even wore badges. True crime is a centuries-long vice that has been prominent in popular culture since the birth of journalism. We have always gorged ourselves on the dark and dangerous. The most important question I ask myself, though, and what I want you to ask yourself while you're listening to the conclusion of Heather's story, is to what end does this fascination and intrigue serve? Personally, I hope that through this indulgence we can learn to protect ourselves and the ones we love, to have more empathy for each other, and to appreciate that which could be taken from us at any moment. And telling you this story reminds me just how close these stories hit home for some. Because this tale hits too close to home for me, I'm uncomfortable telling you this story because it's very real to me. And Heather wasn't the only victim of her disappearance. Her family and friends, the search team, and police, they were all affected, their sense of safety taken away from them, their community violated by the horrible actions of one individual that stains the grounds of their townhouse complex and their streets like an oil smear left under a parked car. So I'll ask you again, creep. Do you know why I chose to tell you about Heather Thomas? I want you to have the opportunity to hear this story from me because I can't detach. And hopefully while you listen to part one, you pictured in your mind your own town. You pictured missing posters on the warm yellow street lamps that lit your streets at night. And you felt the intoxicating mix of emotions I feel. Nostalgia, melancholy, and fascination. Hopefully, you don't detach. Beyond the police jargon and procedure, beyond racing towards the inevitable conclusion, I want you, my sinister friend, and myself, the maestro of this creepy narrative orchestra, to remember that Heather Thomas isn't just a name. But again, I don't judge you. How could I? I'm the one telling you this story, and I want you to enjoy it. 
I just hope you enjoy it for the right reasons. Not far from home and somewhere I've often wandered, there is a lake surrounded by mountains. There is a forest that's always freshly wet and green. The lake is always still and glassy mirroring the sky above. The water is deep with anger when the skies are dark and stormy and a place of summertime joy when the sun beats heavy on its rocky beaches. Here, where I've often wandered, a hiker found himself staring at a milky lump floating in Alouette Lake. At first he didn't realize that the ghostly figure in the water was a body, but after a few moments straining his eyes he saw the outline of the small figure and called 911. As the day passed and late afternoon rolled in, the body was brought to shore, wearing a striped sweater and naked from the waist down. The face unrecognizable due to post-mortem decay. Police arrived shortly and called Heather's father, Pat, to notify him that a body had been found. A body of a small girl, roughly 10, wearing a sweater similar to the one described to police as what she had been wearing when she disappeared. According to police, Pat was calm, once again on the phone, and as he was told that his daughter's body had possibly been found, he was calm. But 20 minutes after hanging up, police were sent to his home. His girlfriend had called police saying, Pat was going crazy. He had broken. The placid mask of an indifferent father fell from his face, finally. And now all that was there was heartbreak and loss. Unadulterated misery. The media heard that a body had been found, possibly Heather Thomas, and they swarmed the park. A news helicopter got so close to the water that the wind from the blades were blowing the body from its original resting spot. Police hurriedly called Vancouver Air Traffic Control and declared clear airspace above the park, but not before the helicopter had snapped its winning picture. And the next day, the province newspaper published the efforts on the front page. They had simply gone too far. They had published a picture of a body floating in Alouette Lake on their front page. And the following day, the province newspaper lost 90,000 subscribers as a result. RCMP split up into teams and searched the lake for evidence. A few hours later, officers located a large hockey bag submerged a few meters from where they had found the body. The waters of the lake were so clear that it was even visible if you were to look closely at the infamous front page photo. Police also discovered a small handmade bracelet on the shore. Police were now waiting for a positive identification of the body, but due to a strike at the forensics lab, there was a delay. But the picture on the front page of the province, the body found in the lake, it was 10-year-old Heather. Following the positive identification of the body, police were now back up to a list of over 200 persons of interest. There were also further complications in finding the person responsible, because within 20 kilometers of Alouette Lake, there are six correctional facilities, three provincial jails, two federal prisons, and a youth prison. 
And that's not to mention the facility located nearby at Stave Lake. A facility for sex offenders. All of this added to the avenues of investigation the police now needed to explore. The results of their search of Alouette Lake had been productive at least. The bracelet was now identified as belonging to Heather, and on further examination, in it the hockey bag had undergarments and jeans that were Heather's size. The hockey bag was also filled with rocks, with the intent to weigh the bag down. Police were now working under the assumption that Heather had been placed in the bag with the rocks and thrown into the lake. But a broken zipper later, her body had begun to float free. And as people started to hear that a body had been found in Alouette Lake, the tip lines started to explode as media started to run the story on the news that evening. A sketchy old white van had been seen in the area. Others saw a stolen vehicle and a shady character out by the boat launch. All of these tips, according to police, were unfounded and filed away. The police seemed stuck in the mud. No one had seen Heather being taken. They found no evidence pertaining to her in their searches. They had questioned hundreds of persons of interest, and now they had found Heather's body after weeks. And it wasn't even due to diligent police work, but the luck that a hiker had walked by as the water in the lake was low, exposing Heather's body, and before a rainstorm could come and carry her away with wind and water. But luck was all they needed to get the ball rolling. Statistically speaking, the suspect was a male. The suspect also played sports, possibly hockey. They now had the location from where she was taken and the location she had been found to start drawing conclusions from. Two days later, an officer by the name of Gary Burke of the E-Division Major Crime Team approached officers on the case. A Maple Ridge dispatcher the day before had called as she had watched the news and watched police recover the small body and the subsequent identification of Heather she racked her brain trying to recall the early days of October. And she remembered, in fact, she had been working the day Heather vanished and the search was announced. More importantly, something nagged at her. She started reviewing the dispatch tickets from those first few days of her disappearance. And there it was. The ticket had tickled the back of her brain. Campground workers Mike, Michelle, Kyle, and Stuart had called to report a suspicious vehicle, and an officer had been dispatched, but reported that the vehicle in question was gone on arrival. But, police now had four people they could speak with. It was another thread for police to pull at, and they grabbed with both hands fiercely. Investigators learned from the complaints that on October 2nd, at 6.50 in the morning, the employees drove into the park heading to their office to pick up their work vehicles. The four workers who had carpooled deep into the provincial park noticed a slow-moving and, as they described it, big boat of a car appearing in front of them. The driver wore a hoodie up over his head. The vehicle was large and hard to pass, so instead they trailed behind it, making their way to work. They were a kilometer from the boat launch when they started feeling uneasy watching this car lumber through the park, but they had to tend to their daily tasks at work. 
So when they got to the office, they all grabbed their respective work vehicles and split up as work started for the day. One of the workers headed south, in other words, the way they had come in. The park employee saw a car in the distance, also facing south, and as they got closer, they saw it was the same car. The park employee saw a vehicle in the distance, also facing south, and as they got closer, they saw it was the same car they had followed into work. But now, it was facing the opposite direction, and the hood was up as if it was broken down. That same employee then radioed to the others to report the second sighting of this car, and the other park workers decided it was too suspicious to shake off and to ignore this time. They called police to see if they would come and check on the vehicle. At 10.30 a.m., a second employee headed south through the park towards the entrance and hearing the report of the second sighting, looked for the vehicle. That big boat of a car was no longer pulled over on the roadside, so he proceeded to continue on his way to the boat launch. But as he drove into the normally deserted parking lot, the vehicle was there, again, this time parked on the boat ramp, again with no driver. He too then called into the office and reported the third sighting. At this point, police had been notified again and were now on their way. The employees continued on with their work and the vehicle remained parked the entire time. No driver appeared and then the employee left. Probably uneasy, maybe curious, or a mixture of the both, the same park employee looped back around to the boat launch, but as he got closer, the suspicious vehicle appeared again, this time on the road. That lumbering boat of a car no longer slowly driving the scenic road through Golden Ears Provincial Park. This time, the driver, with his hoodie still pulled up, was in a hurry, speeding past the park employee at 80 kilometers an hour. The employee did not see a face, but this car was large and blue or gray in color. The officer arrived sometime after, wrote gone on arrival on the paperwork and filed it away. A routine call with little to no effort put in, but now investigators on the case had yet another piece to the puzzle. They were looking for a large car probably blue or gray. Investigators moved through the employees, asking them all the same questions, inquiring about that day. They heard roughly the same story over and over, but gleaming every detail and writing down the minutiae, and then an employee offhandedly remarked that he had possibly written down the license plate in his logbook that day. Investigators, now intrigued at the possibility of identifying the vehicle and its driver, followed the employee back to the office. They found that logbook. He flipped to the page, and there it was on October 2nd in the very corner of the book, written at an angle along the edge of the page. D-R-E-666. I'm not religious, but I won't lie. Saying this now, I am uneasy. It is true what they say. Fact is often stranger than fiction. Had I read this detail in a pulpy novel, I would dismiss it as over the top. A red herring, obviously. A mysterious vehicle, a driver with a hood pulled up over his face, 
in the woods the day after a young girl goes missing. The same woods that that girl's body had been found some weeks later. And his license plate has the number 666 in it. The number of the beast. A symbol of the devil. A symbol of evil. Investigators quickly got to work running the plates. They found that it belonged to a 1971 Chevy Impala, a big boat of a car. A green Impala, close to blue or gray. The vehicle was registered to one 23-year-old Shane Ertmode. Through the vehicle registration, they found that the records pointed to an address in Vernon, four and a half hours drive from where Heather had gone missing. Maybe this was a red herring. A clue left through sheer coincidence and seen through hopeful and desperate eyes as divine providence. But it gets better. On October 2nd, the owner of the vehicle had renewed his license, and while renewing his license, had updated his address. Unit 8, 177th Street, and 60th Avenue, Cloverdale, British Columbia. The address of Heather's Complex. Do you believe in coincidence? The remarkable occurrence of events or circumstances without apparent connection? I don't. I do believe in being a victim of circumstance, though, and I don't always tend to view authority or the police with the kindest eyes. I often find myself questioning or weighing their ethics and morals. Is it more important to find the truth or get the conviction and provide a sense of closure to those hurt and victimized? Was Shane a victim of circumstance, put before the police because of slightly odd behavior and focused in on due to the desperation of the case? The pressure the media was exerting on the investigators? There was no evidence. Police had nothing. They, of course, had the story of the suspicious activity in the park. They had the name of the young man, but they had no evidence to tie him to the death of Heather, other than his proximity to her, and, of course, to the location where her body was eventually found. Investigators began sketching out a plan. They needed time to gather evidence. They needed to make sure Shane Ertmod was in fact the person responsible for the death of Heather. And they needed to make sure he would not reoffend in the meantime. Investigators asked a surveillance team consisting of both Royal Canadian Mounted Police as well as Vancouver Police Department how long they could maintain a 24-hour surveillance on a suspect without losing sight of the target while coordinating between shift changes of three separate teams. An absurd request. But the answer was maybe two weeks, giving investigators at best 14 days to find and gather evidence linking Shane to the crime, and all without Shane ever finding out. Investigators split up into seven teams. Each team had their own responsibilities in the investigation, and each team had a leader with virtually free reign to reach their goal. Team 1 was given the task of writing the warrant applications with a 24-hour deadline. 
Team 2 would travel to Vernon to begin investigating Shane's background, his family, the school he went to, and the sports he played, all without raising suspicion. Team 3 was made up of some forensic identification personnel and investigators who would disguise themselves as construction workers. They were left on their own to devise how they would enter his home. Team 4 would steal Ertmod's vehicle and transport it to a police garage where it could be searched for hair, fiber, blood, fingerprints, anything pointing to Heather. Between teams 5, 6, and 7 lay the duties of arresting Shane should the time come, the interview team, and the team who would take this monstrous undertaking and present it in a readable report. The date was now October 25th. Children joyfully carved pumpkins, myself included. Halloween specials were airing on TV. The apex of fall festivities was at our doorsteps, knocking at our doors. Every child had a costume ready and a backpack full of homework, undoubtedly forgotten until November 1st. Would parents even let their children out to trick-or-treat? Would my parents let me stray even a few feet from them? There was a child killer on the loose, of course. And the news, now with renewed fervor after the discovery of Heather's body, reminded us still each night, as we tried to forget for even a couple days as Halloween raced towards us. There was now a permanent outpost of news vans parked at Heather's complex, reporters and satellites waiting for breaking news, interviewing neighbors or doing human interest stories, the buzz of finding a body was like blood in the water, and journalists circled like sharks trying to take the first bite. Like William Hearst's murder squad a hundred years before them, they could quite possibly ruin this entire operation for the police and doom the investigation, tipping off Shane. This, of course, was a nightmare for police, who now had to undertake acts of subterfuge to get their answers. With all those watchful eyes, how could this go off without a hitch? They had to plan everything down to the last detail. Warrants began getting approved. Police were now in Vernon poking into Shane's past. Things were in motion. Investigators now had to go and review their entire file. They had a hunch that his name or vehicle would appear at an earlier date in the investigation. And it did. On the day Heather disappeared, Shane had been questioned by neighbors if he had seen anything. He replied he had been out, and that he had gone to the movies. On October 2nd, police made note that Shane's vehicle was leaving around 5.20 in the morning. The officer spoke to Shane, who said he was off to work. His car was written down as being clean and nothing in the back seat. No hockey bag. On that same day, October 2nd, Shane reported a break-in and October 4th, police arrived. The residence was clean. A red vacuum cleaner stood in the middle of the living room, not put away. There was a pile of clothes thrown in the middle of the floor, but... Police thought this was normal, as culprits often take a pillowcase or bag to carry stolen items. And because of this, he asked Shane if a bag was missing, if one had been stolen. Was Shane trying to cover his crime, or had he actually been the victim of a break-in? 
Was he covering if at some point Heather's prints were found in his apartment? Was he thinking he might encounter the police eventually? Police finally got the opportunity to enter Shane's home without being seen by media. And as they did, they photographed everything, dusting for prints, looking for hair and fiber, and then putting everything back in place, making it appear as if they were never there. They found no blood or hair in irregular places. Everything looked normal, except for a desk drawer. There they came across normal-looking bills and receipts. But set aside separate from the others in a deliberate fashion were receipts for a gas station and a movie ticket at 5.20pm on October 1st, 2000, the day Heather went missing. It looked to police as if Shane was setting up an alibi. Then on October 26th, they conducted the autopsy. No sexual trauma was found. DNA swabs were taken, but they found nothing concrete. The water of Alouette Lake had either contaminated, degraded, or washed away anything of value. The team in Vernon, though, had uncovered some details that were of interest to the investigation. Apparently, Shane had a girlfriend when he lived in Vernon, who was babysitting one evening. Shane stayed over to keep her company, but as his girlfriend fell asleep, Shane crept to the child's bed, pulled her onto the floor, and began spooning her in a sexual way. His girlfriend then awoke and caught him, and told the child's parent. The parent reported this to police, and it was assigned to an officer. And then nothing. No one ever interviewed Shane, and it took police eight months to go forward with the victim's statement. Officers contacted the father, but he had decided it was not worth putting his child through the trauma of the court process by then. Lazy police work led to Shane never being charged, which led to Shane living in close proximity to children, which led to the disappearance of Heather. This is how investigators saw it. Shane's car was then stolen by police. The tow truck took Shane's Impala to the police garage where they looked inside. There was nothing indicating Heather had ever been inside the car, and then the trunk was searched. Police found hydraulics, rims, pumps, and cylinders. The trunk was stuffed to the brim with thousands of dollars of auto parts. Police were stumped. How had he transported Heather if his trunk was full? Police had already reported that his backseat was empty on October 2nd. Then, anecdotally, a police officer mentioned a documentary he remembered about smuggling illegal aliens across the border under the hood of a car. Police popped the hood and it was cavernous inside. And there was a very noticeable area, about three feet long on the driver's side, which looked like someone had removed the dust or something had been put there where the dirt was scraped away. Shane's vehicle had been seen with the hood up near Alouette on October 2nd, the same day he was reported by park employees and the same day the officer had said his backseat was clean. Had Shane transported her like a stowaway under the hood of his vehicle? This was now the question the police were asking themselves. On investigation of the cameras outside the movie theater Shane had purchased the ticket from on the day of Heather's disappearance, Police clearly saw Shane buying the ticket, but then he left the theater, 
got back into his car and left. He never attended the screening, which he intended as his alibi. Then Shane was interviewed by reporters on the 6 o'clock news. It appeared like Shane was moving boxes out of his townhouse and in doing so was approached by the television crew. That night on the 6 o'clock news, we watched Shane speak out about moving, expressing his concern for his safety and worried about the danger if his young cousin came for a visit. The reporter asked if he had spoken to the police and he said no, and then laughingly under his breath said, not that I want them to come to me. He also said that he was not home at the time. He had gone out to the movies. The male helping Shane, as it turned out, was his brother and told the interviewer that he too had been over that day. And then Shane suggested that he left around 5 or 5.30, as both of them debated on camera as to the time. Shane, in a somewhat lowered voice, again under his breath, said that he had gas slips to prove it. Then police were notified. On October 30th, Shane had moved into a basement suite across the street from an elementary school in Langley. And in the suite above him lived a five-year-old girl. Investigators were in a frenzy. Could they let this happen? Do they blow their cover and arrest him right now before he could claim another victim? They wanted to, but they still didn't have enough evidence. They needed to continue their investigation into Shane, but they also needed to make sure he would not claim a second victim. The police took a risk, reaching out to Shane's new landlord. Police told him that his new tenant was the target of a homicide investigation, and they hoped the landlord wouldn't blow their cover. This was the best they could do given their circumstance. Luckily, the landlord agreed to give them a few days to finish. Then a reporter contacted police on November 2nd. The reporter said, I know you're about to make an arrest, and then continued, I know who it is. The reporter was seeking a comment from the RCMP and the story would be running that night on the six o'clock news. However, they wanted to make a deal. If police allowed them to film the arrest, they would hold off until Friday to go to press. So on Friday, November 3rd, at 6 p.m., upon arriving home, Shane was arrested. And at 6.05 p.m., radio stations were already broadcasting that arrest. Shane, now arrested and charged with the disappearance and murder of Heather Thomas, was transported back to the station, where he would spend the night in jail. He ate a microwave meal for dinner and was given a small blanket for the evening. I wish there was a dramatic conclusion. I wish there was a twist. I wish it wasn't so simple. It almost makes me mad that after all of this, after the pain that Heather's parents had to go through, the pain the investigators had to endure as they constantly felt like they were failing everyone looking to them for answers, that Shane didn't put up much of a fight. There was no grand or dramatic reason why he took her life. Why do I feel like he owed it to Heather to keep this drama going? Now, 
Just three hours into the interrogation, Shane confessed to killing Heather Thomas on October 1st, 2000. Shane lured Heather into his apartment to look at a book with pictures of birds. He coaxed her to the floor and began spooning her like he had spooned the child in Vernon. But unlike the time in Vernon, Heather began to get uneasy and fight back, and as she struggled and he began taking off her pants and underwear, he put his big hand over her face and mouth to keep her quiet, suffocating her. Heather was dead before her father even knew she was missing. Working quickly, he then dumped out his hockey bag and put her in it, along with her clothes, and carried the bag into his car. Driving off, he noticed he needed gas, so he stopped at the gas station, where he thought of the idea of buying a movie ticket. A co-worker had told him about Golden Ears Provincial Park in Alouette Lake, and he thought it would be far enough from where he lived. He drove into the park a few kilometers, pulled over, and removed Heather from the vehicle. He then placed the bag in the thick underbrush, just out of sight of the road. He then returned home, but the thought nagged at him that she wasn't hidden well enough. So the next morning, October 2nd, he got up at 5 a.m. and left. This is when the police officer questioned him at 5.20 and examined his back seat, seeing nothing suspicious, and let him leave. Returning to the park, Shane drove slowly, looking for where he had put Heather's body. This is when the park employees came up behind him, when they noted he was driving and acting suspiciously. He eventually found the spot, but needed to leave for work, so he marked the spot with a skid mark from his tires, and went to work around 10 a.m. He lied and said he had a headache and had to go home, but instead Shane went to a store and purchased an inflatable raft. He returned to the park, and while retrieving the bag, put the hood of his car up. This was when he was seen by the second employee. He went to the boat launch and paddled out of sight with Heather's body, and this was the third sighting of his vehicle reported to police by the park employees. Shane then weighed down the bag with rocks. He returned to his vehicle at this point and sped out of the park. Two years later, on August 29th, 2002, after pleading not guilty, Shane Ertmod was found guilty by a jury of his peers to the charge of first-degree murder. At sentencing, when asked if he had anything to say, Shane told the judge, all that happened today was a fundamental miscarry of justice. The judge presiding over the trial replied, I happen to agree with the jury. You have been found guilty of the most horrific crime in law. You murdered a 10-year-old simply to satisfy your sexual desires. And then he confirmed and levied the heaviest sentence possible in the criminal courts of Canada, an automatic sentence of life without chance of parole for 25 years. While writing this episode, while narrating it, and being forced to relive these events, I think I understand now why I am so fascinated by heartbreak and tragedy. It isn't the death or the murder itself that drives me further into this swamp of filth. I am not sick, demented, or broken. I'm not perverse. 
I suffer from an unresolved mind. I obsess over the answers. I seek the truth in these actions. Sure, Shane is a murderer, but why did he murder Heather? This question in particular is addictive and appealing to me. But why? Because there is no rational reason. I cannot understand why anyone could end up in Shane's shoes. I can try to find reasons. Maybe it was early childhood trauma. His parents divorced. His uncle was inappropriate with him. But not every victim of these traumas ends up molesting and murdering young girls. There simply is no catch-all answer. So every true crime case has its own unique set of circumstances. Beyond this, I need to know how the crime is solved, how the culprit is brought to justice. These answers I do get. These answers do set me at ease. If just a little bit after putting myself into my own self-imposed emotional torment of hearing just how awful people can be. And at the end of the story, after I've thought about it, I'm left wondering how everyone coped. If they are doing okay now. Did Heather's brother Chris blame himself for something so completely out of his control? Did Heather's father ever put the pieces back together and find some happiness in watching Chris grow up in the absence of his daughter? I'm left with hope that in the aftermath, new life can sprout from the ashes. I'm left with hope that Heather's family, despite forever mourning the loss of their daughter, found some piece of happiness. Sound familiar? Hey, Creep, if you enjoyed this podcast and feel generous, subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume podcasts. This is a weekly show that airs every Tuesday, so if you want to hear these episodes as soon as they come out, hit subscribe. And if that isn't enough, then do it so it can finally move out of my mom's basement. And with that, my creepy friend, I bid you adieu. Be safe, take care of one another, and don't forget to lock the door.